Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. So I have a very honor to have this guest on, and we've been uh, engaging with each other for a few months now. Um, it, it, it's, it's kind of, we'll tell you the story later on as it goes on, but it, it, the author is, uh, the book, the name of the book is Tunbridge Farm, and it's written by Mark L. Staker and D Donald L. Enders. And uh, just to give you a little background here, uh, Mark is a master curator in the Historic Sites Division of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He holds a doctorate in anthropology from the University of Florida. He has spent 27, probably 28 years developing museum exhibits and researching, restoring, or, or reconstructing and furnishing buildings for historic sites central to the history, history of Mormonism. His best known work includes the restored priesthood restoration site of 1820s Harmony, Pennsylvania, and historic Kirtland village of 1830s Kirtland, Ohio. And by the way, uh, I think around circa 2008, 2009, I got to visit Kirtland. And uh, it's a wonderful, uh, in the village, I actually had the mission president and his wife give me a tour of the facilities. And it's a really remarkable thing that you guys have done there. Thank you. I appreciate that. If I could just add to my colleague, uh, Don Anders, uh, I'm doing all the talking, uh, but he um, is a brilliant scholar uh, with more than 50 years worth of uh, focusing on these sites. He started out with um, Pinky Harrington, you know, the father of historic archaeology in America. And, uh, so he's contributed significantly to all this work. Well, I'm glad, glad uh, for sharing that. Thank you very much. And by the way, welcome to my program. It's a real honor to have you on. Thank you. Appreciate being here. So uh, before we get started into the, the actual subject of the book, I just want you to kind of maybe give me a little bit about your background, uh, maybe uh, being raised in the faith and then a little bit of your educational background, and then we'll discuss the book. Uh, yes, I was raised the Latter-day Saint uh, in uh, West Valley, Utah. At the time, it was just Granger, a rural area outside of Salt Lake City and Salt Lake County, uh, where I grew up. Uh, very interested in archaeology. Um, that kind of drew me into uh, what evolved to into anthropology. Um, my initial focus was um, Book of Mormon archaeology and a fascination with my faith and uh, what archaeology had to, to say for that, I recognized quickly that um, that I was more interested in uh, what anthropology had to say about the human condition. And I was drawn that direction uh, by some very um, influential scholars. I went to Brigham Young University and uh, they, uh, Tom and Pamela Blakely, were both not Latter-day Saints. They were Congregationalists. Uh, my, uh, the, my professors there, which uh, was an unusual combination, um, but I was uh, taken by everything that they had to say about anthropology and took every class that they offered, and that kind of directed me uh, toward uh, where I ended up going to the University of Florida. I focused on the African-American experience, uh, primarily in the Caribbean, uh, where I did my field work in the Republic of Suriname. I still have uh, very strong uh, feelings about uh, that all and about uh, that area of research. And I often just read on my own um, to keep current with a lot of what's going on there. You know, just, uh, just as you mentioned that, you know, I, I really interested in your research that you did on Black Pete and the Pentecostalism in the early church. If you want to just talk about that for a couple of minutes. Oh, it would, um, 
the, the point of that whole section, when I, I wrote Harken uh, O Ye People, uh, the focus was on the historical context of Joseph Smith's early revelations. And I wanted to focus on somebody who impacted those revelations, who was not part of the larger narrative, you know, the bigger story, not part of what we usually discuss when we discuss uh, Joseph Smith's early revelations and the prominent individuals who were associated with him in his small circle. And so uh, the individual who, who called himself Black Pete, we don't really know his full name or, or, or uh, his entire uh, historical context, but he seemed to be a compelling individual, and particularly because of my own personal interests, I wanted to know more about him and his background. And so I, I put uh, some of those early revelations in the context of his experience and how he helped influence uh, their development over time. Yeah, that early history of the Restoration is very fascinating to me. Um, I come from an evangelical background, but also a charismatic background. So a lot of that, uh, those stories resonate with me. And it, it, it uh, just to give you an idea, the very first church within the Restoration I ever visited was at a congregation of the Church of Jesus Christ. And uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was a really uh, interesting thing. I felt very comfortable uh, in that, uh, being in that context. I felt like uh, I was at home there. So um, that's very interesting. I really loved your work that you did that. Actually, I don't have a copy of that book, but I'd like to get my hands on that as well, because I, I find that subject fascinating. So now let's just talk a little bit about your latest book, uh, Tunbridge Farm. Um, it's a very... Uh, you know, this is kind of like you're really getting in the weeds here now, like a typical just person like, well, what would be interesting about a lands archaeological and landscape study of Tunbridge Farm? Well, if you're really into the restoration and you want to understand the context of the world that uh, Joseph and his family were in and how much that can influence, obviously, you being an anthropologist, you understand the importance of the influence of the world that you're in. And so uh, I found the story very interesting. Uh, and then what made you decide that you wanted to pursue this, uh, this story? Well, um, I'm working with my colleague, uh, Don, on a, a much larger study where we're bringing together all the archaeology that's been done over a lot of years on the early Smith family and putting that into a larger historical context of what do we now know about the Smith family in Vermont and in New York. And uh, this was a whole uh, we didn't know about that early early period of uh, Smith family settlement in Vermont and um, wanted to be able to know more about that. And so this uh, grew out of that uh, context, wanted to, uh, we were able to get some funding. And uh, as I think I mentioned uh, briefly in the book, most of this was just self-funded from us. Uh, using vacation time and uh, frequent flyer miles and uh, great friends who let us stay at their homes everything and we're able to on a shoestring uh, do this project. So uh, detail the process of actually trying to locate the actual location of the farm. Well, um, there for more than a century, there have been people visiting the site uh, some taking pictures, others saying things. And so uh, the general area was known. 
Um, and there's a great uh, photograph uh, in Sacred Places, which is a, a guide to early historic sites. Uh, Larry Dahl, a professor at Brigham Young University, is pointing down and saying, here's the location of this uh, cellar. Uh, that location doesn't match an early 1907 photograph uh, done by George Edward Anderson, where he said, here is the uh, home of uh, where Hiram Smith, you know, <laughs> Joseph Smith Jr.'s brother, um, here's where he was born. And so uh, there were questions, you know, who who do we trust? Of course, I trust Larry Dahl, but um, you want to trust <laughs> George Edward Anderson as well. Um, and so um, we wanted to make sure uh, that we were at the right site. It took a lot of prep work to study, you know, the property boundaries to know those details. Um, there was an early land survey done that started at the corner of, uh, he called it the Asel Smith home, um, but it was on this property and not on property that we knew Asel owned at the time where he was living. And so we had to assume at that point, we were able to late, later confirm that, but we assumed, well, this must be where Joseph and Lucy are living um, because he's buying that from his parents. And so that actually gave an exact location, which in the writing of the book, we made sound like a real simple process of, you know, here's the latitude and longitude right here at the corner. Uh, but we measured and remeasured and remeasured I used aerial photographs because it, uh, you know, somebody's survey done in uh, 1797 was not as precise as we do that today. And it took a lot of confirming to just say, yeah, this is, is the spot. But we, we were able to confirm that uh, um, through the archaeology, but able to narrow it down through those other sources first. So um, how was your interaction with the locals? while you were trying to, giving this investigation, trying to track this down? Because I know that they've had interactions with uh, Mormons in the past in this regard. Uh, the locals were by and large, extremely welcoming, very friendly. Um, as we were kind of looking at the property, you know, walking along the outside up the road and saw these no trespass signs, um, just a little nervous about what do we do? Who do we talk to? We didn't know you know, the nature of the property. Uh, we wanted to just kind of walk, walk it and do some little thinking at first to see, can we do more research here? And a gentleman kind of walked up to us looking, uh, as you would imagine, you know, like, what are you doing looking my property over? Um, it turned out to be Scott Beavers. Um, he and uh, Patricia Beavers owned the property. Um, uh, we got to know each other well, uh, wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, I consider them great friends. Um, I hope that they feel the same about me. Um, we've developed a great relationship over time. Uh, but there was that initial dance of, well, what are you doing at my, at my property? Uh, for good reason, uh, there was an individual, he, he was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, David Hall, uh, a big investor who had bought up a lot of properties surrounding them, looking to build this uh, communal thing that nobody really quite had a hand on. What is he doing? But he was kind of pushing people out, raising uh, the value of land, and had a lot of people upset. Um, 
to the extent that as we went up the road, we were trying to figure out the whole area and uh, Asa and Mary Smith, uh, Joseph's parents, had moved up the road. We knew where their property was as we were doing this measuring, trying to figure out, okay, how does the survey fit? Um, uh, we created enough suspicion and nervousness that the grandson of the owner of that property came out with a shotgun and walked us away. Um, and so um, we, we made sure that we respected their boundaries and stayed away from their property. Um, but we've been able to work things out there as well over time, and hopefully uh, it'll lead to more research in the future. So you've uh, in the starting in the fall of, of 2016, um, you guys decided to uh, do some preliminary preliminary archaeological work, um, and then also you came back in August of 2017 uh, to do some more work. Maybe detail uh, that process. Okay, when we when we first met uh, Scott and Patricia Beavers, we explained you know our interest in the site. Um, they knew that there was a connection with the Smith family and their property. Um, they were interested in knowing more about that as well. And we knew from that uh, photograph taken in 1973, um, you know, this foundation that was partly visible, some of the rocks were visible on the side, that that, that location was there. And that's where we uh, then uh, did uh, our, our measuring um, and we did uh, some test trenches. Initially, it was uh, freezing cold. You imagine it, October uh, should have been beautiful, wonderful, leaf-changing <laughs> weather. Uh, but this was Vermont, and it snowed part of the time. And uh, we were shivering and digging. But we, we did that, um, that test trench in just the two of us. Uh, but it was enough that we found some early ceramics that dated to the late 18th century. Um, and that said, yes, this is an early, early site. And uh, we knew that the Smith family had, had purchased the property in uh, 1791 there, this fit with them. And that was enough to confirm with, and then with the measurements that we were able to do, confirm this was uh, the likely Smith site. Um, that we wanted to be able to dig this further. So uh, you then, so you 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 definitely think, okay, we got the location. Now we need to get back out and do another expedition. Now, from my understanding, it was in August of 2017, and you got some local LDS volunteers to come help you out. Correct? Uh, right, right. We knew um, that we wanted to do this. That there were just two of us, and we needed a lot of help. Um, so uh, Joe Mender, who was uh, over the, uh, the Joseph Smith birthplace site in terms of the physical maintenance of that site, um, we, we contacted him and we said, you know, you have um, missionaries that help uh, maintain that site. Uh, would they be interested in doing something like this on their preparation day, their free day, you know, when they go shopping at the store and other things, and they actually were extremely excited about this opportunity. Uh, who wouldn't love to be able to dig in, uh, you know, the, the home site of this famous American character and learn more about it? Uh, so we arranged, um, I made some equipment, some sifting equipment, and mailed it out there. Um, 
did that just in my uh, carport uh, because I couldn't afford to buy you know professional stuff, so I had to learn to make it all by hand. I got it out there waiting for us. They let us borrow their shovels. Then the Scott and Patricia Beavers let us borrow some of their garden equipment, their wheelbarrow things. And uh, so we got this team of people that helped us, had different people on different days. Um, the local community, the um, South Royalton Ward, uh, members of, of our, our church that came out as volunteers. Others came from a distance uh, that had heard about this, came and worked for a time. And we even had some tourists who stopped by the side of the road to take pictures and said, well, they were, you know, exploring the early history of the church and what's this going on? And we explained it, can we help? And absolutely. And so uh, we let them help for a time as well. So let me ask you, uh, let's say I'm uh, Dr. Staker, you're going to have this expedition, archeological expedition, and I'm a volunteer and I'm very interested in all of this. And, uh, explain to me, okay, these are the do's and don'ts of an archaeological dig. Well, you don't touch anything unless you've been instructed as to how to approach this and know what you're doing. Um, as you, uh, We would have them sift through the dirt very carefully, and these are the kinds of things you look for. Anything that's uh, man-made, even if it looks like a little piece of uh, charcoal from a fireplace, a piece of wood, uh, ceramics, anything, uh, make sure that you've saved that and let us look at that. And then we, uh, some uh, that we felt like they could handle uh, the digging portion, we would have them, we'd measure out a specific dimension, you know, the square foot, dig this down, take it down an inch at a time, and then put that dirt that you take down as you scrape it with a trowel into a bucket and it'll go uh, through the sifting process and we do that in a structured, organized way so that we know exactly where every artifact came from as it comes out of the dig. Um, so uh, what is the future when it comes to doing the future expeditions? Are you planning on doing any time any soon? Um, well, that larger project I mentioned, uh, this book I'm working on with Don Enders is going to take every bit of my free time for the next year or so until we can get that done. And then I'd like to go back. There's a lot more that we could learn from this site. And um, love to go back and do more here or uh, maybe other places if, if the opportunity presents itself. So let's talk a little bit about um, the Smiths um, locating to Vermont and choosing that particular spot of where they wanted to farm. Um, maybe detail a little bit of the, about the time and the place and the circumstances that led them there. Well, um, in March of 1791, Vermont becomes a state. And while a lot of people had been moving in there before then and settling, that opened the floodgates. This is now kind of settled area, protected. There's some, a sense of more safety. Uh, there had been a massacre in uh, Royalton, Vermont, the a village right next uh, to this site uh, during the Revolutionary War. And I, I chose to discuss that in the opening section of the book. One of the reviewers recommended that that all be removed because uh, they felt that it uh, portrayed Native Americans in a negative light. 
and I felt no because um, this uh, they were acting under orders of the British officer that directed them there as a part of a war effort, and it wasn't them; it was him that had directed that massacre. And it's so important to understanding the context of this story, uh, partly because um, they use this the property where the Smith family settled as a staging area for the massacre, and it gave it kind of a negative spin. But even more importantly, as part of this larger study we're doing, um, it suggests that the Smith family felt comfortable with Native Americans. And they didn't feel that they had to fear them as much as perhaps their neighbors did. Um, and so I felt that it was important that we uh, included that uh, context in the book. Uh, but the Smith family comes up then in the spring of 1791 and Asel and uh, his uh, two oldest sons, Jesse and Joseph Smith Sr., then buy this property. Asel leaves them, uh, his sons, there to prepare it for the family. And he goes back to Massachusetts where they're living in Essex County uh, to prepare to come the next year. And he gets so, uh, uh, one of his sons says he's lonely for the family to be together. I think it's, he's just excited about being in the new area. Maybe a bit of loneliness too, and wanting to be connected back together. But I think that there are a lot of things influencing him to want to get up to that property as quickly as he can. So he, uh, by October, uh, they are heading north as a family uh, to settle right before winter, which is the worst time to arrive new into an area. You've got animals that you've got to feed through winter um, and you need to have enough feed to get them through uh, the winter. You've got a, a whole family that you've got to feed through winter and you've got to have a shelter that's uh, capable to um, keep them all comfortable and warm for the winter. And they have none of those things. So how they managed to get through that first winter, um, I have no idea. But I think that the archaeology suggested some interesting things. That they probably, they, there was no room in this little structure for people to lay down and sleep and to have a chimney. Uh, so they probably just had a small uh, hole in the roof where they're letting uh, smoke out. Uh, you can imagine circumstances, a little fire here, smoky little room as they're trying to keep warm during the winter. And they're probably spending a lot of their time outside during uh, daytime hours uh, doing work uh, in the snow and the cold, trying to get things ready uh, to plow and plant and other things during the spring. Now, of course, because of the conditions, uh, there it's a very rocky terrain. It's a hilly terrain. Um, maybe describe some of the uh, efforts it would it would take to uh, tame and cultivate the land. Uh, well, they've got to clear uh, acreage. It's an old uh, growth forest, so they're going to have massive trees there that they've got to cut down. Uh, winter is the best time to do that uh, because then you can drag those trees across the ice um, and they slide easier so you can get them all in a big pile, uh, burn them. Uh, there wasn't uh, there was uh, uh, there wasn't a sawmill close by. It was quite a distance away. Um, so hard to get lumber to the sawmill and cut it up for house. So they probably aren't doing much, if any, of that kind of work. So they're cutting down trees. 
and then they've got to clean the rocks off of the landscape. They'll put those uh, on to the edge of their boundaries uh, to make fences out of. And we know that that's exactly what they did because those fences, at least parts of those fences still survive. And uh, uh, they tell us some great things about the property as well. You can look at um, how the stone is stacked and what's done with stones later on on the fields to know how the property was used. And uh, so that's really helpful. Uh, to look at those details on the land as well and know that those stones are going to continue to rise up to the surface and be moved. So um, I know that based on, uh, there's actually still evidence of this, that there's actually, apparently they they were involved in planting an apple orchard and had a, a few different varieties of apples that they were growing. Well, we... Um, there are two different kind of stories there. One is the we know that there are apples down in the meadow today. Uh, did the apples always exist in the meadow, meadow there, or were they uh, grown on the hill and they've moved down to the valley? Um, so we we know that there were apples, and uh, we were actually able to study uh, those surviving trees and learn a lot of things about the kinds of apples that they were were growing. Um, uh, we were able to identify three, uh, the Bethel apples, uh, yellow bellflowers, and uh, maiden blush apples uh, were three types that they were growing. Uh, two additional ones that uh, we don't know exactly the varieties yet. That's one of those things I'd love to do uh, in the future is to learn more about what were those additional, the, they were the cider kinds of apples. And so that'll tell us a little bit more about what kinds of cider, what, what did their cider taste like? How are they maybe processing that? Um, uh, most cider was hard cider, meaning that they let it ferment a bit. Um, were they doing that with these? Probably. Um, and then the other detail is that um, we, as we're looking at the hillside, you can tell some things about how the, the land was farmed at the time period based on how it looks today. Um, it's, a, it's a wooded area today, and you walk through it all, um, nice uh, woods. Um, an outsider, particularly somebody that has grown up into a desert area like me, I look at those trees and think, wow, this, is, this woods has been around for a long time because it takes forever for trees to grow in the desert where I live. But uh, there in Vermont, those trees aren't particularly that old, a half century old or so. But, um, we knew from talking to the neighbors there who were in their 80s and 90s, uh, they could remember back in the 1930s uh, clear pastures in that area where the cows had roamed. Uh, but does that mean that the Smiths had pasture land or were they farming it beforehand? Uh, well, you can tell by looking at the soil because uh, old growth forests, you get these undulations in the soil each time a tree falls over it pulls the soil up with the root ball. And then as that tree decays, it leaves these little mounds um, that are called pillows. And where it pulled up that root ball, you have a cradle, you have a little indentation in the, the soil. And because you have those in the soil, uh, you know that that was an old growth forest area. But as you plow, and then plow again, and plow again over time, those undulations um, disappear and you have a, a very level uh, agricultural area. 
Well, on this hillside, uh, you still have some of those undulations. So that says, all right, uh, we know that this was old growth forest. It was plowed a little bit because uh, those were knocked down. Those pillows and cradles were knocked down some, but it was not regularly plowed. Um, so uh, you then, of course, were doing some excavations about the actual buildings. Uh, so just to detail a little bit about the, the facilities that you were able to uncover um, and, and your, your approximation of what you think each one of these buildings were being used for. And some, just give us some insights on, on that. Okay. Um, well, we were able to excavate the home. And what we uh, were able to piece together, uh, there was an early photograph that was really pivotal in, in learning some of the details about the home, but the excavation was critical as well. We learned that this was a 24 by 24 foot structure. Uh, by the time Joseph and Lucy are living in there, uh, ample space for them. Uh, for a period of time, the whole family is living there until they're able to move up on, onto a different property. Um, uh, so that gave us a sense of what this home was like, uh, a log structure. We didn't find any uh, roofing nails, so that there were no shingles. It was a bark roof. Uh, which uh, would have been tied down by using uh, poles, wooden poles to hold that bark into place. Um, so when it all decayed, it left no metal artifacts. Um, and at some point there were windows put into that structure and we could uh, tell that as well, but we assume because of the historical context that that wasn't done originally. It's not likely that they brought window glass with them, um, but they could have. Um, so that gave us a general sense of this uh, building, uh, a cellar. The cellar had been expanded at some point in time, made deeper and more uh, useful um, some point very early in the process, but there was an, an initial uh, root cellar very early on to help them get through those winters, storing some food uh, that they needed to have. Um, one of the things that we hadn't expected in terms of the buildings um, was we were just focusing on this one home. And then Scott Beavers, uh, the owner of the property, uh, just one day said, well, hey, what about this other building over in, in the wooded area here? And the, uh, there were trees that were growing up in that area. And it was, you know, we just hadn't looked over there really. And um, so that drew our attention to the site and we looked at it and uh, uh, looks over there carefully to see some foundations exposed. And so that was another uh, building that we ended up uh, looking at and did some test trenching. We didn't have time to excavate that one. Um, and we didn't use the volunteers for this part of the process. It was just uh, Don and I, we did some test trenches to tell us the dimensions of the building and uh, some general characteristics about it. Um, but not uh, anything in detail because we didn't have time to do that. And is this the industrial building that you could refer uh, this to? This is the industrial, it turned out uh, what we learned was it was an industrial building uh, up right near the road um, that it was built during the Smith family occupation. Uh, everything suggested that all of this area was just Smith family occupation, that once they moved from the property, it became 
all pasture area for later owners and that nobody else had lived here. So um, that narrowed down, you know, I made much easier the analysis of, of the things that we found. So this, well, this was an industrial building. We found a few nails in there. That uh, is all, but again, we only did very basic work there. There might be some more uh, stuff that we could find that would suggest uh, additional details. We found that the floor had been leveled uh, with some mortar uh, to hold some kind of a large uh, item that needed to be kept level. And um, the, the floor was uh, dirt during the process, not a wood floor. And so that helped us exclude um, the idea of it being a cooper shop, which is, was our, initially our assumption all along. Oh, this was a, a cooper shop for the family, and then they built a new one up on uh, Asel and Mary Smith's property because we knew that they had a cooper shop up there. Um, but it wasn't that. And uh, so we've been trying, and part of the book addresses some possible options as to what it could be, but uh, we haven't narrowed that down entirely yet. I know you had some speculations about possibly a kiln, a cider press. Uh. Uh, yes, yes. Um, it looks like the, the leveling must have included some kind of a kiln operation. That's what you would need to keep level in a building, a kiln to, or a press uh, to do some kind of a work. Um, it makes sense that they would have a cider press. Uh, we know that they had uh, apples. I mentioned um, and one of the things that we've found out uh, as we looked at that hillside and I mentioned those undulations, um, it was clear that whatever they had done on that property in, term, in addition to a pasture for the cows, which would have that kind of undulations, um, was a perennial crop because they're not continually plowing it. And so apples was one of those options. And if they had a whole mountainside of apple trees, um, then you're gonna need a, a cider press uh, to press all those apples and then process them and put them into barrels, which makes great sense. Uh, the family makes barrels for a living. Um, you turn uh, apples into cider, you put them into barrels, you ship those down to New York City where you've got a great market. Uh, you're gonna bring in a lot of money for them, help them to pay for all this property. And uh, that was an option. So. I think um, in your final chapter of the book, um, you entitled it Lucy's Meadow, Her Grove, and Her First Vision. Let's detail that a little bit about her, her vision that she had and the context of which it was given. One of the things that we hadn't even um, anticipated doing was uh, looking carefully at Lucy's involvement and her, her use of the landscape. Uh, most of uh, what women do is in, takes place in the house and then kind of right immediately around the house. Uh, but Lucy gives this uh, wonderful account of a vision that she has. And uh, uh, by a vision, uh, I mean what she calls a night vision. It's a dream. Uh, she's uh, caught up in the religious excitement going on in their valley right at that time period, 1802 to 1805. Uh, the revivals not taking place right in Tunbridge, but in uh, East Randolph, where they lived for a little bit of time, and then north of Tunbridge and uh, the villages up there, uh, just a few miles away, so they can easily get to them. And she's caught up in all these revivals, um, but her husband isn't. 
and it causes her some stress and some concern that he's not responding uh, religiously the way that she is. And uh, so this dream, uh, she describes this valley in detail. And uh, it turned out that that meadow was right there in front of us. That her, what she's telling in her dream is her own landscape. And she's talking about a prayer that she has and we could identify the location where that took place. And we could identify the little brook that she uh, describes in her dream. And the point of the dream at the end is that um, her husband will eventually respond to the Holy Spirit like this tree in this dream responds to the wind. Um, and it dances in the wind. And I saw that uh, in terms of uh, the way you might experience a Methodist revival at the time where there's a lot of this motion going on and people feeling the spirit and some falling down. And that's exactly what this tree is doing. It's, uh, it, it bends in the wind and it moves in the wind and that's her husband. And she sees this other tree that's stiff and immovable and that's her brother-in-law, Jesse Smith, that she sees is not responding to the spirit. Of course, neither of those trees is there now, and I don't know that they ever were. I that's just part of her dream. Uh, but the, the setting in which that all takes place is there, and uh, you can see that on the landscape as you're standing there uh, at her home site. And so that was uh, really fun to, to connect those two. And so we explore that in the dream and in uh, what's going on there at that site. Fascinating. Uh, so uh, eventually they do uh, leave the property uh, and, and move on. Uh, just maybe detail the circumstances that led up to that. Um, they, they, they start out, they shift from when jo Joseph and Lucy get the, the property from Joseph's parents, they shift from his mother's dairy. And it's clear that the whole property was dedicated to a dairy at one point in time, presumably uh, for his mother while his father's making uh, barrels in the Cooper shop. They shift from that to an agricultural uh, effort. And then they shift from that to wanting to move uh, and open a store. Um, scholarship up to this point had presumed that that store was quite a ways away. Uh, Lucy uh, talks about, uh, she uses the terms Tumbridge and Randolph and Royalton. And uh, Westerners like me, I'm used to thinking of towns as, as equivalent to villages. And she's talking about townships and not villages. And in, uh, Royal, in Randolph Township, uh, where, she's, um, uh, where she mentions that they have a store, there are a number of villages and there's a village just three and a half miles from their uh, farm. And it's just down the hillside in a valley in what was at the time uh, East Randolph, uh, the largest village in the township at that time. Uh, now you go and there's just a handful of, uh, you could count buildings probably on one hand. I probably shouldn't say that because somebody will go there or you could get on Google Earth and you can count a few more than, than that. Um, but it's a very small number of buildings. At the time, it was a bustling community. Uh, they go there uh, to open a store. 
And Joseph Sr. gets involved in the ginseng business, uh, which a lot of merchants are doing at that time in that area. Uh, even in, in uh, the neighboring village, there are a couple of neighboring villages there. The merchants are all doing that. And he ends up, uh, as he ships all that to China, uh, he ends up losing his shirt. Uh, literally, uh, he loses he loses all of his merchandise. He loses um, a, a wedding gift, a thousand dollars that uh, Lucy had received, and it puts his uh, brother-in-law, um, Stephen Mack, ends up in debtor's prison later as a, a part of all of this. Uh, but that's an, another story not explored in in the book. But uh, the part that is explored is that they then have to sell this property um, to pay off the debts from that uh, business. And as Joseph and Lucy sell the property, uh, the family is impacted in to where they all <laughs> have to sell theirs as well. And um, most of them move out to uh, Potsdam, New York area and leave Tunbridge behind. Uh, that's that's one of the critical uh, elements of this story is that it ultimately forces Joseph and Lucy to uh, move to Western New York. They would never have gone there had everything worked out well on this property. They would have continued to stay here and uh, you know, raise their family. Well, you haven't totally left behind Tundra Bridge Farm yet because uh, there's still something that you're working on, and that is a uh, pollen study of uh, what you uh, to, to do an analysis of what was being uh, grown at the time that they were there. Now, this is, is kind of a fun story because, you know, Mark and I have been in communication with each other since, uh, I believe since May, and we were in, anticipating uh, that the results of this pollen study would come up in sometime in June and then maybe July, and it kept on getting bumped up. Uh, it's a real, I actually, I kind of am glad that this happened because you about every other week or so, you kind of give me an update and explain to me the process um, of how they do this analysis with the pollen and it has to go through a centrifuge. And just to talk a little bit about the process that you're learning as well as I am of how this works. Okay. Uh, um, as I mentioned, the, one of the possible uses of this industrial building was as a cider press to make um, apple cider if they were growing apple trees on the hill. Um, but there could have been another thing that they were growing there, which was hops. Uh, hops were the first cash crop in Tunbridge. A lot of people were growing them. They actually were brought up from uh, Essex County, Massachusetts, right where the Smith family had come from. They may be the original people who brought them up to grow, or certainly others that they knew were growing them. Uh, so it makes perfect sense that they were growing hops on the property. And um, in the book, we argue for a circumstantial case uh, to suggest, yes, they were most likely growing hops here, but we couldn't confirm that. And one of the things that we suggest in the book was, well, we need to do a pollen study uh, to do, uh, to really know this uh, better. And as uh, this book was initially released, people said, well, why don't you do the study? You know, we'll help you donate some money for you to do that. And it seemed to be better than getting a whole bunch of people to do a, a crowdfund of some type uh, to do this, uh, that it would be better to just have one source of funding. And so I worked out a grant, a research grant that allowed us 
to collect some pollen um, and to do this study. So what we're looking for in the study is, well, what kinds of pollens are in this industrial building that can tell us if there was a plant process in there? Is there apple pollen? Or is there hops pollen in here? And pollen can last for thousands of years, um, particularly in a desert environment. Uh, you can learn a, a lot of things, actually tens of thousands in some contexts. And um, geologists and archaeologists have really learned some great things after using it. It turns out it doesn't last as well in this area because of high um, water levels, but it seems to have lasted well enough. Uh, we got some uh, six samples of pollen uh, from strategic locations within the building and outside of the building, so we have something to compare to. And uh, what uh, we're doing is uh, Ken Peterson, uh, who is a, one of the leading uh, pollen experts in the country, is at this very moment counting little um, pollens. <laughs> um, I, I know the name for it, but it escapes me. But um, uh, each pollen is called a, a specific thing, but um, he is counting those every morning uh, this week. Um, for, he can only do it for about four hours at a time because you can imagine counting each little pollen. Uh, he says that they've, they've run this through the centrifuge. It took weeks. We were expecting to have this done some time ago, but it, uh, the, the geologist that did that part of the study was in the Middle East doing some work. Um, he's been able to do that. Uh, we know that there is some degradation in the pollen because of those high moisture contents, but it's in good enough condition that it can be counted. And so it's being counted, and uh, I don't know. I'm anxiously waiting on the edge of my seat, and I know others are as well, uh, to learn the results of this pollen study as Kim Peterson looks at this pollen and counts each um, little particle. Uh, it will tell us what uh, was done in this building because that pollen uh, was left behind while they were bringing in hops or while they were bringing in apples and uh, we'll get a sense of um, how the building was used. I'm hoping that it's one of those two because then that explains the data that we found and the, the circumstantial case that we've built for that. Um, if it turns out to be something different, it'll be a really big surprise. Um, we'll have to go back and figure out what that all means. But um, we're anxiously waiting, hoping to, to find out in the next couple of weeks uh, what that will tell us. And that leads us to um, what the reason why we were kind of waiting to do the interview, then we could announce the results of the pollen study uh, at the time. But Mark and I have been wanting to get together for a while, so we decided to do this interview. And so we're kind of making this a two-parter, part two to be determined. Uh, but basically, uh, he's he agreed to come on to the program, and this is really an honor that you're going to do this and come on the program and reveal the results of the pollen study. So my audience will be amongst the first to actually hear the results of what is being uh, grown there. And, uh, you know, Mark, I just wanted to say that, you know, I uh, lo loved your book. I only brought one book with me to the Mormon History Association. Well, first of all, this is a, a compact, so I, it's easy to travel with because I thought, well, I'm going to get Mark. And I'm going to have him sign, give me an autograph on his book. The plan was to read the book on the plane, but I ended up having a wonderful conversation with a, a member of your church, uh, the whole three and a half hours worth. And uh, so, but uh, I want to thank you so much for uh, uh, agreeing to come onto the program. 
And then I'm very excited about doing this pollen study. So what I'm going to do is I will keep my audience up to date about uh, on Facebook about what, what the progress is. And then uh, we'll kind of count down to the, the big reveal. And so uh, I'm very excited about this, Mark. What about you? Well, I am as well. Looking forward to it. Usually uh, you don't turn a, a book review podcast into a news station. But in this case, uh, yes, it will be a news release um, that will... We'll share that data as soon as we have it together and have been able to make sense of it. And I think what I'm thinking is that like when you have the results and you've had time to to do an analysis, you just let me know and then we'll just we'll record the interview and we'll 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 release it, you know, maybe that same day, uh, depending on on the circumstances. So that's kind of the game plan, uh, everybody. Uh, Mark, I want to thank you so much for coming onto my program. Well, thank you for having me. And I just want to remind my audience to uh, like and subscribe. Uh, I Please leave your comments. Uh, I will provide a link uh, to uh, purchase the book in the description. And uh, I just want to thank everybody. I want to thank Mark for coming on. I want to wish my audience a wonderful day and have a great afternoon. We'll see you.